Hi guys, first of all, I just want to thank you for tuning in to Buddhas by the Roadside, where all three of us are very, very happy to, to have you listening to these episodes. In this episode, we speak about water fasting, we touch on the game of cheaper technology, about software, about push the movie. We go into a long conversation about intentions, our intentions with Buddhas and intentions in general. We have our first argument on the podcast and then we finish off talking about human rights. Um, this is a very Buddhist conversation in the sense that we're jumping back and forth between subjects. Once again, thank you so much for listening and enjoy I'm a little bit dizzy mm-hmm how come I Thursday night the project was at an after project dinner and we had so much food that Friday morning I woke up saying I don't want to eat had a little bit of lunch but you know not really hungry had a little bit of dinner without really being hungry and then yesterday when I woke up so Saturday morning it was like maybe I'll just not so I just had water yesterday and I still gobbling down the water but today I'm a little bit dizzy you know that uh, low blood sugar yeah precisely yeah. that's that sense of something is like ooh, mm. it's not quite there I figure I'll have some, some food later. Did you get food poisoning? No, I just had too much food. Gluttony. Yes, gluttony. So I'm opting for the anti-fragile, asymmetrical aspect of, of life for the weekend. The, the wages of sin is higher wages. Yeah, well, going from one to the other, I mean, hey, why not? <laughs> I would, you know, asymmetric or not, I would probably call that binary. Well, <laughs> maybe. maybe. What's the binary part? On or the, off? Yeah. Now, but from, from my experience with fasting, I can can say that not not eating for you know I, I did 36 hours fasting um, and the day before I have to have proper food otherwise I, that exact thing happens when when my blood sugar just goes holy fuck um, and so for for next time that might be just try it I will experiment with it yeah because it's a completely different feeling of fasting i would say at least for me i've never really fasted really mm. it's it's good if you're into altered states mm. i'm not sure i'm that into altered states from many perspectives of altered states let's put it that way 
You hang out at Engsbacke in the summer, so sorry. I do. That's why I said sort of many of them, not all of them. But I don't hang out. I've been there once, <laughs> just to clarify. <laughs> I did end up in a very altered state, though, and it lasted for two, three days after coming Drug, home. Drug free, non-drug Drug induced. Non-drug induced, yes. Non-substance induced. It was a very strange state, uh, I can say, from the outside. <laughs> a very, very different one, rather. Quite fun, though. I'm kind of cross-eyed and painless. <laughs> hmm. I've been playing around with uh, Descript this morning as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like it, it doesn't really go into the workflow the way I thought it would. Um, but if we use it correctly, uh, all three of us could use it to edit our episodes. Um, and what would correctly be? Well, that's the thing. I mean, if we plug in all of the uh, recordings, we can transcribe them and we can edit them in text. So you, when you remove me talking, saying all of this, it actually removes from the sound file as well. Oh, wow. Um, which is super interesting. Uh, it's also quite dangerous. Yes. Because if you remove things you don't want to, you, know, you have a version version history and you can sort of... It's quite advanced. Um, and I think that if I have a pro account, I think you guys can create free ones and, and then we can work in the same project. It seems that way at least. Um, what it doesn't do very well is uh, mastering is is not very um, not very advanced not very technical and um, it's kind of hard removing because what I've been doing in these past couple of ones I've been removing when, when I'm speaking I remove both of your sounds completely uh, that's sort of a mess within uh, Descript um, yeah, but I think I can find a way because it's not a sound editor. That's the thing. They they've added a couple of function. It's it's very good for the basic user, um, but now that that we've actually moved on to using Logic and and these actual sound editors, um, it's sort of too basic. But it's good then for the 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 cutting of it, and then you could do the sound editing outside or that that is a hassle that's the hassle um, i mean that would work but the thing is I, i've been doing that uh in the same sort of uh step of the process up until now um so when i've been going through what what i'm doing when i remove the the sound files from from when i'm talking i remove both of yours um 
there's a special command for it and it does it automatically. So I determine what sound levels are to be taken as silent and then I just remove them. Uh, doing that, I, I get those kinds of coughs and, and those kinds of things as small clips on the timeline. Uh, so they're still there. I remove those as well. Um, and so there's very rarely anything that we need to actually cut out all three of us. Because most things that you guys mark are just, you know, Dominic, Bang, or... or um, cat at Helena's, and that's removed on Helena's track, not in all of our tracks. And that's a lot easier when, when it's that kind of editing, that's a lot easier to do in Logic rather than anywhere else. Mm. Um, but so, what I'm hearing is you could describe and sort of time code and flag stuff that we really don't want to be in uh, the pod and easily get rid of those. So in a sense, because it's, it's quicker to read through a transcript than to listen to the, at least for me. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I yeah. mean, it is, this last one, it is 17 pages. Mm -hmm. And it is quite painful to read through when, mm -hmm. when not everything is correct. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are no punctuations whatsoever. So, so it is quite heavy to read as well. Um, so what do other people use to transcribe? People. Pod pros. People. Pod pros use people. Yes. Yeah. Because the AI it just isn't there in yet, it, it can't, um, and especially for us. I mean, we're speaking English, yes, but but we're also throwing in a lot of Swedish. Um, where at least Helena and I are not natives, even though we're fluent and, and highly sort of. So the automation, automation revolution that's been promised since, what could it be, 1992 or something is still kind of not there not yet. getting there. Uh, come on, we've been saying this for years, getting yeah, there, it's getting, it's around the corner, it. the singularity is coming. Didn't you see the Neuralink? I thought you of all people would, would have that under the radar. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been hyped for months that um, they're going to release it on, what is it, the 27th of August or whatever it was, 24th. We have pigs with computers in their brains now. Yeah. And they've applied for, for uh, human trials. Yeah, it's interesting, but we don't move faster than we do. That's just my point. Don't. No, and I think I mean, I do think it's a it's a wonderful tool, and it and it carries us a lot further than would uh, than if we would have done it by hand. Um, well, it 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 definitely helps in a particular arena, but not sort of it's not the arena where everything is sorted. 
And that's kind of my point is that you still need to, you still need to do the craft in order to achieve a certain quality. No, what I was going to say is that, that I think there are advances, but, but as you're saying, they're mo not moving as, as quickly as we expect or think they, they would. Uh, and, and I think there's a big difference between consumer and, and research in this area as well. Um, I saw Jan showed me a Twitter thread where they'd plugged in, they, they've given a, an AI uh, access to, you know, bunches and bunches of text. They, they, they fed it the whole of the English Wikipedia, and that was, you know, 1.7% of all of the material they'd gone through. Um, and then they plugged in, you know, sort of, this person and this person are having a conversation about this. Uh, and it actually puts out quite quite a reasonable text and a conversation between the two. And then they throw in a sort of uh, curveball of saying, you know, Harry Potter arrives and uh, starts talking to these two scientists. And it manages. It, it becomes quite humorous. Um, but we're still a long way from, or it, there's a long way between that and us being able to do it. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen uh, the stuff from, um, what do they call it? GNP3? Um, I recognize I'll, I'll get you the reference. It's, it's, a, it's an autocomplete AI um, that writes text. Um, and it's, uh, it is pretty impressive. I mean, it's like, um, you can definitely say, wow, but it's also a little bit of that uh, experience of, um, okay. Um, okay, now we're going to make it, do it faster and better and, you know, okay. Let's do that. <laughs> Far better, faster, stronger. What did you just sing? What was that? Daft Punk. Deaf Punk? Daft Punk. Daft Punk, yeah. Daft. Daft. Hmm. Daft Punk. No, so I, th I definitely think... think uh, Descript is is worth exploring, and I think, uh, you know, after after our conversation on Wednesday, we'll have a, a clearer view of whether or not to use it and and how to use it. Because it's also a question of is is the time worth it? You know, is it worth the effort? The well, are you going to do free R and D? Uh, in what way? Well, that's what the whole tech industry kind of boils down to. Ship your product as quickly as possible, imperfect. Get a lot of people to use it, usually at an increased price. Um, then you continue to, <laughs> to develop your product based on the feedback and bugs from your users. And slowly the price decreases and you externalize the price decrease onto society. Um, and away we go. 
Here we go. Well, well, I I do think I will. You know, I'm a free uh, on a free trial right now, but I I do think I'll actually pay for this service. Um, of course, depending on whether or not we're using it. Um, but I'm I'm quite happy with that model, though. Good. Yeah, I. I'd rather have that than someone sitting on it, trying to perfect it in their basement, not releasing it to you. I don't think that's really the issue. What do you think is the issue then? I think at a systemic level, when you, when the result of technology innovation is sort of hollowing out just about every other value criteria in a society, um, then the model doesn't really work because ultimately everybody dies. It's the, the guy with the most toys when everybody's dead model. It's exactly the same thing. They're just two ways of expressing it. So, I mean, if you think about how uh, uh, technology gets financed, you know, um, that every step of the way everything becomes cheaper big bunny ears, as Helena likes to say. Where do you think that money goes? Where does it come from? That's a really interesting question to explore because it does actually go somewhere and it does come from somewhere. So if you want to take the really sort of uh, serious shortcuts, then you can say, well, uh, Jeff Bezos being announced as the first $200 billion uh, person in the world and the uh, uh, technology price deflation curve, these two things have very significant relationships. They also have very significant relationships with a whole series of other, uh, de uh, how should one put it, um, degrading in the sense of not regenerative, degenerative practices. The process of, of um, kind of, a, 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 how should one put it, es essential economic growth or, or uh, infinite economic growth, the growth model that exists is also built on this kind of thing. So you can sort of back that up to you know, at a guess around 50 years, at least in, in, in uh, most of the Western world, you can see the collapse of, of wages. Um, so up to about 1970, there's a, um, a fairly reasonable gap between the lowest and highest earning um, people in societies. And then from there onwards, the two just go in, in completely different directions. Um, and there's a lot of different explanations for this kind of thing, and there's a lot of, of complexity to observe. But one of the very important elements um, is this idea of that things must get cheaper. Technology, we sell more technology, um, and by selling more technology, you can get more of these products cheaper all of the time. It's an extraction model in a, a limited resource world, and it, it definitely leads to catastrophe. 
either now or you know in three generations but uh, when you're having to have to forcefully relocate uh, entire cities in China in order to build iPhones we're in shit you know um, I mean you're having to have to relocate them because the pollution is so serious and the pollution is so serious because uh, in order to make the phones cheap enough uh, you can't do them um, safely and the, um, the price is, is human lives, the environment. So yeah, I also want people to ship stuff. Um, I also want people to try stuff and, and, and fail and et cetera, et cetera. But the, the financialization model is, is, is deeply problematic. Or destructive or whatever you want to call it. What's the root of this financial, finance, whatever model? <laughs> Financialization model? <laughs> What's the root of it? Or yeah. the square root of it? Well, regardless. I don't know if I understand your question. And I don't know whether I'm actually qualified to even have an opinion. Well, I don't know that either. I mean... I mean, what's the, when, what's when the cause did we, of it? Yeah, sort of, what's the fork in the road? When did we head down that path? Yeah, again, people kind of um, present different arguments from what I've seen. There's the uh, Piketty, um, you know, the... Uh, um, Thomas Piketty. A, Thomas Piketty looks at, like, a history of... of capital and capitalization and things that happen along the way and um, there are other similar ways of looking at it. Um, the former labor minister and uh, Clinton, Robert Reich, he's done a lot of work in this area and uh, talks about very specific uh, indicators in society. So um, a lot of the focus is on Western uh, Western financial institutions but definitely somewhere around the 70s uh, really significant things start to happen and, and really hit home in the 80s um, in the form of, of general deregulation and financial deregulation has you know quite complicated aspects to it but if you had to sort of boil it down it basically means that you can you can leverage um, within certain monopolies you can leverage advantage you can leverage uh, uh, money uh, to or capital to a, a much higher degree than your average uh, wage laborer can do and that means that if a wage laborer has ten dollars or ten crowns in the bank they can loan you know um, maybe three or something like that um, but for a, a a person that's on the other side of that threshold who's part of the 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 privileged monopoly elite um, for those ten dollars you can loan a thousand dollars and that really really shifts the, the the relationship and that means that by you know 2000 2010 the age of of debt economy is is completely 
established and in principle what that means for the the tech that you're buying is that you don't own it because you're usually buying it on credit to when household credit is is so incredibly high household debt i should say uh, usually that implies that very very little of what people believe they own they actually own um, because they've signed agreements within a so-called financialized economy so the the, the the acquisition of goods is financed through debt and that debt is the driver of growth. So if you want to read on debt economy, Ellen Brown is uh, one of the more famous writers on debt economy, but you can check out also Steve Keen has a great book called uh, Debunking Macroeconomics, I think. Um, the uh, kind of alternative ways of understanding modern economics and most of it is just really uh, it's, it's not easy to wrap your head around because there are at the very core of these things problems that that kind of um, that 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 beg a credibility you know that 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 just uh, make you wonder how on earth it could be possible for there to be such an imbalance in 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 in, uh, in law in rights in in accountability So deregulation basically implies that um, there is no ceiling on speculation. It's a kind of a, a gross um, summation of, of deregulation. That means that you can you can speculate on speculations. You can make any kind of uh, financial instrument based on the risk on speculations of speculations, and then you can. Uh, do accumulations of speculation markets and create futures and options on the risks on the speculations on speculations. Um, and at the time of, of the 2008 crash, uh, I think it, 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 it had, I can't remember the exact number, but I mean, we were talking about something like 40% at that stage of the world economy, the global economy, was just based on paper risk and the maintenance of risk in speculative uh, uh, trading instruments. And a lot of that speculative risk is what drives, for example, um, the successes that come out of, of, of Silicon Valley that people create a product and invest hugely in it. So you have angel investors that are going to put a hundred billion into something and you distribute it and market it hard to get people to uh, uh, adopt and influence and et cetera, et cetera, with the, um, the model that when a certain number of people 
get involved, you probably have exponential growth in the product and recover all of your money. And then you can start to apply different, uh, you know, branding levers so that you, you, you can be quite sure that there's going to be a queue outside the shop to buy the iPhone, you know, 54 or whatever the latest number is. So yeah, I think the, 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 the model is problematic from a, the point of view of that the, the individual players are one can possibly have something to say about, but systemically um, there is an incentive to uh, disabuse the planet to, um, to engage in, in maximum extraction. Disabuse is a funny word. What does that mean? Abuse, but then disabuse. Disabuse. I don't even know if I mean that. No, because it seems to counter. Mm. The system is abusive. Totally with you. Wow. Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> fuck. Man, there was like a nuclear flower spreading there yeah. in my head. All kinds of light just flashing up. Yeah. Well, so, so I mean, for, sorry, I'm just getting a notebook out. Um, so, so I get that model from a perspective of product, physical product. But how does that work with, with a service? Such as? Such as the script. Because, I mean, from where I'm standing... And Descript is just to sort of get... It's know. it's a transcription tool. It's a software, uh, and that that's that's the the main talking point here. Well, what about software? Because I get that software depends on the physical world, in terms of servers, in terms of labor, in terms of actually using hardware. Um, but as a market, in and out of itself. Um, how does that contribute to to that, or how does how does that model apply to to software? Well, maybe I mean I would try and answer the question by thinking about how it doesn't apply. In what way is software innocent of um, you know um, innocent of practices that uh, are systemically um, corrosive to general quality of life or value or whatever. Um, because the, the general assumption, the idealism around technology is that we do it because of progress, we do it because it makes everything better, faster, bloody, bloody, blah. Um, 
Daft Punk. I beg your pardon? Daft Punk. That, it makes that everything thing. Daft Punk. That's, that's it makes everything Daft Punk. Yeah. I'm, I'm still not you, getting the reference. I mean, I know Daft Punk What did you say? Is... You sang Faster, Better. Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. Okay. Yes. I, I don't know that one. I only, yes, I only know the one with uh, words. Pharrell. <laughs> I'm offended. Yeah. <laughs> Crank. What the fuck? Okay, so why why should software now be a bad guy? Um, and yeah, I think it's 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 possibly a, a longer discussion than we want to go into, but I'm I'm kind of um, if I want to find ways in which software is a contributor to well-being, um, uh, sort of outside of the regular tech arguments, in what ways does uh, this model add value um, to quality of life? Um, it becomes kind of difficult to separate software from the systems in which it's going to be uh, engaged in. So it's a little bit of the same question for me of why should I not produce um, syringes in a in a heroin market or um, it's like there's a there's a there's a context in which things happen um, and it doesn't make any of those things guilty or innocent in and of themselves um, and when we start to unpack them and watch the energy flows what are the the pluses and negatives and you start to back out of that and see that there's a systemic or deeper culture that in itself may well be a lot more costly than what the benefits are then the things that are happening from within that culture do not necessarily justify themselves simply because they innocent of being necessarily extractive or exploitative or whatever the case might be. And if you want to get into specifics, then you look at things like, I don't know, you know, Robin Hood, um, the trader app that um, kind of uh, uh, the people in the financial world will write about in quite glowing terms, you know, because it's disrupted everything and it's so smart and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and looking at it from a different perspective, you notice that there's, there's a lot there that doesn't really match up. It's a little bit like the Uber and the sharing economy or uh, uh, what are they called? Um, Airbnb. Um, and there's this, uh, there's this selling point that this is, all of this is just going to be so much better. It's going to be so much cheaper for you. Um, and well, what does happen is that very, very few people make a fuck ton of money out of it. And that money actually comes out of the physical pockets of a whole series of dupes that bought themselves into the idea that either this is a sharing economy or it's good for everybody and et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
and there are many there are many examples of this we've sort of mentioned the uh you have to help me helena what is it called uh winner takes all um uh, I, can't, his name I can't remember his name but he's kind of uh, dealing with a problem that an enormous amount of of development work and and uh, what would you call it um, um, uh, social development work community projects um, uh, philanthropy mm-hmm. has become driven by uh, uh, typical typically um, or uh, uh, typical consulting firms, uh, large ones, who present a model that says for the underprivileged and poor uh, to get out of their situation, they have to become entrepreneurs. They have to learn to help themselves. Um, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to enable these people to become entrepreneurs and they're going to be able to sort of improve the quality of their lives. Um, and this sort of, of idealism hides the reality of, of the background of these worlds in which hundreds of billions of dollars are being moved through uh, 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 organizations that create tax breaks for the donors, for the donors, um, and that the effects of these, these inputs um, are not only not really achieving the things that they say that they do, but they actually are making the dependencies on the particular addictions much, much worse than what they were before. And the benefactors of them are, for example, the um, the family that, you know, is accused of being behind the opium, the, the opiate crisis in, in, in the United States. I can't remember what they're called. Uh, um, help me. Um, they're one of these donors, the Ford Foundation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I heard a really great expression for this particular type of, of uh, ethic it's it's called uh, predatory idealism and i think that inside the the sort of techie uh, progressive naivety i mean the the tendency towards uh, progress as solution to everything is this kind of predatory idealism that as long as I believe that I'm idealistic, then it doesn't really matter what it is that I do. The ends justify the means. Leading to the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Something like that. Which is... Greed is the word that pops up for me. And I think greed... Um, fueled by or or the underlying factor being you know fear or this this fear of of lack of of not not trusting in abundance not trusting in in um collectiveness, um, community, 
so it's you know each man to his own you have to fend for yourself and that just warps I was listening to and I I, I recommend it would be interesting to hear you I did send you a, a snapshot of it um, pushback talks the filmmaker and the advocate Frederick Gerting and Leila whatever her name is um, from the film Push which is about housing as a human right Leila Fasani I think her name is is a human rights lawyer and they had an episode on Airbnb and and it's it's the perfect example in a sense it's the perfect example you have three students of design or graphics or or whatever it was in San Francisco I think who you know but hey we had such a hard time finding somewhere to stay when we started out you know what if we let some poor student rent our air mattress for you know a couple of bucks a night and that's the start of Airbnb and now one of those guys is worth three billion US dollars and the company is now in shit due to corona but but you know worth billions and billions and billions and somewhere along the way the original generosity of the idea somehow which i can buy into especially since i love borrowing someone's house and living in a house someone's home not a hotel or that type of this is just for rentals um, with with city-wide problems across the globe of of empty of of there no longer being any community because nobody lives everybody just rents very short term and and you you lose the the backbone the structure of of society and I mean that wasn't their intention at all um, but somewhere along the line that's where it that's where it's led to so with your question, Caspian, on software and how that relates to the the hard hardware of it, the physicality of of aspect, is it like you say then, Dominic, that the context itself, the the strata, the the environment of it, corrupts anything that goes in there. You cannot not be corrupted and thwarted and I don't know if that's true but it's your a lot of what I see feels like that's what happens there are substantial movements into other 
types of ethic, you know, um, for example, the, the P2P movement um, started by, uh, well, I think it started by this uh, Belgian guy, uh, Michel Bowens. People to people. Yeah. Um, Bowens would be probably the right way to pronounce it. Um, and if you go to the website, I mean, there's a serious amount of material available that demonstrates a commons-focused uh, way to approaching these these issues, you know. So um, it's not a everything for free kind of um, uh, utopia at all, um, but it is an, an, an open source world in which there's accountability and etc. And if you want to look at uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies and these kind of things, um, uh, you know, looking at those types of technologies and you, you dig into the, the sort of substrata, the, 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 the layer of ideas that are deeper down in the stack, as the, as the techies like to say, you know, you stumble on things like um, uh, von Mies, uh, Austrian economics. Um, and, and digging into Austrian economics is, is really quite revealing because it's, 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 it's a really important part of a substructure of libertarian thinking. Um, and it really forms a, a, a strong backbone for uh, blockchain, for Bitcoin, uh, for uh, to a fairly high degree also Ethereum and so on. But there are alternatives. Um, th there's this uh, hollow chain um, that at least philosophically tries to address uh, some of the issues that arise out of what the value of blockchain is and how blockchain creates similar kinds of uh, dominant uh, monopoly privileged uh, systems and how to include a commons perspective in them. And so, I mean, I just want to say I'm not anti-software, I'm certainly not anti-technology, um, I'm simply trying to uh, uh, raise awareness that the different ways to achieve these things and the way we are predominantly going about it does actually have a, uh, an end of the road at the cliff, all the lemmings into the sea. Can I just, for reference, what website was that? Where, where can we find these materials? P2P Foundation. Um, I think that's what the website's called. Um, and really, there's—I uh, mean, there's a there's a lot of material to look at, a lot of material to read through. There's lots of specialist areas in governance, in in technology development, in uh, uh, social development, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's—I'm not trying to say that I want to advocate for the P2P Foundation, but that there are other ways of thinking about these problems, uh, some of them quite well developed and, and really interesting. And exactly as you say, Hila, it's, it's not like people set out to create uh, total dominance, you know, full-spectrum dominance. In some cases, they really do. Um, but generally, I think we can assume that, that people on the planet really do have others 
best interests at heart, you know, at least within their particular um, context or sphere, if not the whole planet. But there is a concern for how can we make things better, uh, how can we solve these problems, etc., etc. And that's, you know, that's a good thing. That's a really nice thing. Um, but it's, it's happening within a context of uh, cultural values, of uh, habits, traditional habits, very ingrained uh, ways of doing things, ways of seeing that are not always entirely um, visible. And we also have a culture where it's so hard or frowned upon, ridiculed, uh, shunned out, if you actually say, wait, shit, I went wrong somewhere. I am no longer proud of this thing that I've created. Help. Like, what do I do? How do I stop this? Um, which, which that entire um, way of, of encouraging reflection and, and taking responsibility and ownership and, and um, yeah, ownership, agency also, I guess. I can see examples of the opposite in, in so much. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, a, a local person running, you know, driving their car too fast in the area and you need to point them out and shun them and, and ridicule them to local politicians, to big companies. So it's, it's like it's in, in all levels of, of, of distance from me, I can, I can see that we are not... We're not encouraging responsibility. We're not encouraging owning up to the fact that back then I didn't know better. Right now I do know better. You know, shit, I did wrong. I stepped wrong. I choose something or I chose something that wasn't wise. I see now. coupled with this eternal fixation on fixing, right? So if somebody actually says, I went wrong, then you need to fix it and just introduce more and more and more stuff that somewhere along the line turns into, oh shit, that was a wrong choice. Another one and another one and another one. Um, especially when it comes to fixing somebody else, everybody else, something else, you know? That's an interesting... Uh, pair. Well, I would... In, in that context, I would bring up two, two examples. One of what you're talking about and one, one of the other, sort of the opposite. 
because um, I know that one of the founders of Twitter, I, I heard a podcast episode of him on how I built this, I think. Um, I can't remember his name, but um, he said that, well, you know, we, 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 our idea with Twitter was to exchange ideas quickly. Because if we exchange ideas, you know, things can get better around. And, and if everyone can, can exchange ideas without any hierarchy or as little hierarchy as possible, um, you know, thing, things will get better. And then after a couple of years, he realized that that wasn't happening with Twitter. It was too short form. It was um, too quick. You know, he, he pointed out that there were a lot of good things happening on Twitter. But he also said that we've, we've got massive problems with this. Um, so he jumped off. He said, I, I can't handle this. I, I don't know what to do about it. Um, and I think it's now, you know, in retrospect, I don't think I would have created Twitter as I did and he created a medium instead, as we've talked about previously on, on here, I think. Um, longer form ideas uh, or longer form texts, bigger ideas, easier to, to actually write your ideas out. Um, and I would say that's one way of taking responsibility for, for what he created. Instead of saying, I, I can't fix this. There's no way I can do this. Someone else might, but, but I'm out of here. You know, sort of. And I think that in, in my, from my perspective, that's, that's a lot better than just shutting the whole platform down. Because, as I said, there, there are a lot of good things happening on Twitter. And I think all three of us have, have experienced that. Um, or I know that at least two of us have. Um, we wouldn't be here otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Um, Some good came out of it. <laughs> that was the thing. Um, no one on, on the other end of the spectrum or sort of to, to what you're saying, Helena, with, especially with the fixing or the thought of fixing something is Facebook. Where you continuously, I would say, for, again, from my perspective, I know that this, I am not speaking for, for all of us saying these things. Um, but from my perspective, Mark Zuckerberg has grown into and, and started reflecting a lot more upon what he actually has created and what's come out of it. Uh, he is, on one end, very much this techie business. You know, he, he knows what he's doing with buying Instagram. He, he knows what he's doing with launching new things on Facebook. But there's also a, a degree of, at least when, when he's speaking, I haven't seen it that much in the actual algorithms, of saying, you know, Facebook has become something else. We're going to fix it. Uh, and it's continuously fixing it. 
Um, you know, I think it was one or two years ago when, when he went out and said, Fake is, Facebook is going to become more of a pl family platform. You're going to connect with your family and friends. We're not going to see as much pages. We're not going to see as much ads. You're going you're gonna to be, be able to connect with your family and friends, with your closest ones. Yeah. We have seen we have seen a lot of that. I, I really do want to emphasize algorithmically. That. Yes, and yes. and statistically, because anyone who's running a big Facebook page knows that they're getting a fuck of a lot less traffic. views, mm -hmm. likes, traffic, etc. And I can't really point to where the where the traffic has gone but i can say that that it's in in my experience it's not family and friends well i think there's a few different uh kind of things in that. I mean, part of the, the fix-it thing is that there's a kind of um, uh, a layer of code in which um, problems is an essential part of the economy. It's kind of like, um, uh, I mean, one aspect of, of the global economy that's really, really important is arms trade. And if you don't have wars, then arms trade becomes kind of a problem. Um, problems is the same kind of thing as arms trade. You need problems to fix in order for this code to run. So as long as everybody's in and addicted, then it's pretty exciting to come up with new problems and fix them. Um, and then you discover new problems, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, the actual thing for me, I mean, when you say that, that Zuckerberg is more reflective and so on, um, really, I can't really say that I have terribly much credibility uh, for that degree of honesty in a system in which if you show that kind of, of weakness, if you're really going to be reflective, if you really care, the chances of you actually losing competitive advantage are really huge. You simply don't do that. You use that type of uh, predatory idealism uh, to improve your market share. You sell a new idea, um, you know, and whether it's 1950 and Coke is telling you that Coca-Cola is good for your health or cigarettes stop cancer or whatever the fuck it is, um, this is kind of part of our, our, our our history, this is part of our legacy. Um, but what we see in, 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 in the society we live in is, is um, a much more insidious presence of it. I mean, where people, uh, the, the, the consumer actually starts to promote this stuff themselves um, in the form of, of uh, for example, um, so-called influencers. And how does that work? Well, you know, uh, you get paid for the number of clicks you have on your YouTube. Um, and slowly but surely, people start selling products that they can't actually 
really endorse, but they do on their on their on their show or on their channel or whatever. We spoke about this earlier, and the thing here for me is that if Zuckerberg hadn't gone out and been more reflective and said, "Oh, we're going to be more careful with fake news and we really care about uh, democratic values, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, it would just go the same direction as as Reddit or something like that. That it it, it loses market value, it loses market share because it becomes completely relegated. But on a, I mean, relegated into some unpopular arena, it becomes alt right or whatever is the the bogeyman for the day. Um, but systemically, there's no big question marks as to what value is added um, through social media, um, whether we're talking about children or whether we're talking about adults, uh, there are very, very clear indicators that uh, there are real issues around uh, personal health, psychological health, planetary health um, that have been highlighted through the, the, the uh, popularity and spread of, of social media, both from a, a physical, technical resource point of view and from a, 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 a community mental health point of view. And any kind of, of genuine, honest, reflective uh, statement is going to be, we fucked up. We should not have let this genie out of the bottle. How are we going to fix it? You know, how are we going to deal with this? And that's not the discussion that's going on. The discussion that's going on is, well, maybe we fucked up, but we have competitors. So if we try to, to stem the flow of this thing, our competitors are simply going to fill that gap and we disappear. And those are the rules of the game. That's lower down in the stack, in the, in the, in the code. So yeah, you tend to think up things that are going to be good. You know, you disrupt some industry because there's a real need, and sometimes they really are important issues to address. But very, very rarely um, do they actually result in some kind of common good. And if they're not resulting in a common good, well, then it is part of the sort of basic game theory process of establishing advantage and dominance. And I'm not trying to sort of, you know, say that these are evil things. I'm saying they are things, that those are the rules of the game. That if, if, if you're going to go along with the idea that it's going to get better because uh, Twitter are now going to put labels on shows or labels on, what do you call them, um, posts to say that uh, tweets, excuse me, that this is of uh, dubious quality or this is fake news or whatever, you know, you really don't need a big stretch of the imagination to understand that whatever criteria Twitter is using is going to be to their competitive advantage and has got absolutely fuck all to do with whether or not it's, you know, some sort of, of definable truth or, or uh, reliable news. It's not. They're games, they're political games, they're economic games, and the game is to win, the game is not to be a, a fair participant. When you get stuff wrong, putting up your hand and saying, ooh, I got that wrong, almost invariably is a strategy to attract more points. 
and I understand that people might see this as a, a cynical point of view, um, but this is, this is the, the, the system we live in. Nobody is free from it at this point in our, in our society. And maybe nobody ever becomes free from it. There are, there's a fair amount of, of anthropology that looks at the... I mean, you talk about agency, so in the sense of, of I put up my hand and I say, I really fucked up. Um, I should not have done this. Uh, what can I do to repair this? There was a whole lot of, um, I mean, being a South African, I have a sort of clear memory of the, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, and these, uh, the model has been recommended in all kinds of different contexts around the world. Um, and it's amazing to watch some of the footage from, from that particular TRC, and I'm sure there's, uh, there have been others, and there are probably going to be others, but where people come up and say, uh, look, you know, um, we have to confess that uh, through not doing anything, uh, we were actually culpable um, because we didn't make any opposition. We were quiet, we were silent uh, and, and benefited from the situation. And now uh, <clears throat> we're going to invest in community development programs. Um, so you kind of kind of have to spin back the tape to winner takes all and and pretty soon you realize that the community development programs very rarely actually result in proportionally the same advantages being gained by those community members that 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 suffer as a result of these systemic problems compared to the delivery mechanisms of those supposedly uh, new advantages or, or, or um, uh, what would you say uh, um, donations, dispersed uh, uh, development possibilities. The fact that NGOs become part of a competitive market is not strange. What's strange is that we don't, uh, we don't notice that we don't notice that there's this culture around us of, um, of, of, of wanting to play for advantage. That's a good summer of it, wanting to play for advantage. I also thought to just mention, you said that Airbnb had um, suffered under Corona. Um, there's some quite interesting data to suggest the opposite, um, that the expectation was that, that Corona would crash uh, a lot of these uh, kind of um, Uber-like economies. Um, and I read an article in the New York Times that lists a whole series of these uh, kinds of companies that have had fantastic growth as a result of Corona. Um, and you sort of have to stop and think, whoa, let's just unpack that and, and think about it. How does it work? Well, why wouldn't they? I mean, the whole, the whole model of, of the sharing economy is that you have virtually no overhead. 
I mean, Uber doesn't have to, to pay its drivers since they're not driving. Then, then you have, you know, 10 developers and, and uh, a couple of servers. Yeah, a couple of servers and, and you, know, you know, one or two business developers and a CEO to pay. Same for, for uh, Airbnb. It's a quite nice model. Yeah, and I mean, the idea that they, they would not manage sort of comes out of uh, uh, one of the second order effects of Corona that, that people don't travel. Um, and those analyses are made by, you know, quite respected economists, um, data analysts, et cetera, et cetera. And then they turn out not to be true. Well, then it obviously indicates that somewhere the wrong criteria kind of creep into the, uh, into the, the, the analysis. There are, you know, faulty axioms or uh, something just isn't really matching up. Um, and oddly enough, um, it could be that the same people that were in the driving seats before are still in the driving seats after all, um, despite we having, we having predicted that there would be a crash or there'd be a terrible time or whatever. Um, I don't know how we came to talk about all of this. Was it because of the, the Descript? I think that was it. What a wonderful uh, kind of um, metaphor for systemic thinking that here we are recording our pod talking about what products we're going to use to to produce the pod and um, you know reflect on whether or not those things are ethically sound and effectively we've avoided having to have to take a stand on them at all. But seriously, if, if, you know, if we, if we were going to say, okay, well, you know, now we have to decide, are we going to do this or not? Because it's not in the interest of broader humanity. So we should really desist. Um, is that a question? Is it something that we can put forward? I think it's a really interesting question. Well, I mean, the, the thing with, with doing good for humanity, I, I think we end up in, in sort of the same discussion that we did when, when we did these 11 questions from, from Tim Ferriss with the billboard. You know, who the fuck knows? I mean, our intention with having these conversations is to bring, you know, Tankespian and some thought process and some, you know, just reflections and information and, and, and into the world. And showing a way to relate, a way to have conversation, a way to be in relationship with, with one another. Absolutely. But, you know, who, who are we to say that this is, going to make humanity better 
it makes us feel better. Hmm. We are having fun with this. It might benefit humanity. It might just as well, you know, just be us using up space on our, on our hard drives, you know, making me a part of that system because I need to buy a new one. Or us buying server space, you know, it, it, it might just as well be that. We can't tell right now. Well, there are things that we can tell, you know, if we use the system, you can analyze the metrics and say, okay, well, you know, there are 20 people that listen to our pod, um, or maybe, you know, 19 or 18 or 17, if uh, any of us three are counted into that. Um, and then uh, weigh up the amount of time that we we spend and the amount of, of, of just pure power resources, energy resources we use um, to be able to produce them. But we, we still can't, we can't measure the impact on those 17 people. Well, there are also, you know, um, where are we at? Half a billion other pods. Um, running at the same time, influencing their 20 people. I can go and talk to 20 people. I know 20 people. I probably know quite a few of those 20 people that listen to the pod. I don't have to use, uh, you know, uh, these kind of network distribution systems and uh, instant access and et cetera, et cetera. I don't. Um, it's not entirely necessary. So the, I mean, for me, the, 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 how should I put it, the, the justifying um, issue here is uh, one, are the ideas good enough to bring about some sort of, of small change insight? Um, two, do we have enough of a skill space between us to conduct conversations that other people might find inspiring in their form not the content, but in their form, that we actually uh, skillfully navigate relational issues between the three of us. Is that good enough? Does it really do the job? And how would you answer that? What's, what type of data, what type of metric do you need? What's the criteria? When is it yes, when is it no? Well, it would be good to have feedback. That's basically the, the bottom line, I think, that um, among those 20 people, can they say, oh, I had a life-changing insight or I had a really valuable insight or um, there's something that I noticed that's, that's uh, you know, different to anything else I've ever experienced or um, it gives a, a subtle hint at something else that I can do or um well we already have that yeah. we have had a couple of people saying you know i've had huge insights i really enjoy listening to this you know i'm gonna change this or that you know we we brought up that a couple of times before now what yeah they said we need to get that feedback per episode, uh, continuously ongoing, or, no, that was enough, we've gotten it. 
we have carte blanche to continue. I, I also I also want to say to to this point, not we're we're not putting Dominic to the spot here. You know, you need to answer these questions. It's it's rather just a conversation for us to have. Dominic happens to have all of the answers. Yes, that's what we're counting on. <laughs> Yeah, but even though you say that jokingly, I think that that's sort of one of the things that's a problem because I don't really have any answers. I, I explore and read and uh, I'm fascinated and curious, but I sort of continuously find myself thinking, oh, fuck, you know, um, back to school again and again and again and again and again and again and again, that... I'm sort of like a, a walking Dunning-Kruger effect, you know. Imagine that uh, I might understand something until I apply it into a problem and then I realize that, uh, no, uh, I need to relook at that, you know. And then I do relook at it and maybe I learn something, but then um, it's, it, it, it stimulates more curiosity. I like that. I really enjoy uh, uh, being in this body and going through those processes, but I don't have that many answers. And that is one of the things that I appreciate with you, but also appreciate with us, is this I think the essence of it for me is in these conversations new thoughts pop into my mind. I do receive Tankespian whether it is from Dominic very certainly responding to one of my questions or whether what you're saying sparks something in me that, you know, it, it, it's like, yeah, it's all of those. I could probably find five more, 10 more, 50 more ways of, 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 of process, of, 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 small fuel units into the process of me learning more, period, about me, about life, about society, about economics, about blockchain and shit that I still don't get. Um, that, for me, is, is why I so value and cherish and treasure you guys and this because we are scheduling time for us to have these types of conversations and perhaps we would anyway but we didn't really before we said we wanted to record that was much more seldom and rare so this this um, this ongoing process and somehow for me letting other people into the ongoing process makes me more prone to engage in that process there's there's um there's a nudging factor there or something i don't know So, 
Question then, how are we then abusing um, the world, the resources? What are we doing from this? You know, our intention is fucking good. That, de that depends on where you're standing. Mm -hmm. You know, we have intentions. We think they're good. Yeah. I don't think, you know, a uh, uh, far-right extremist would agree. Because our intention is to open new doors. And not everyone wants to open new doors. Not everyone wants people to open new doors. I just want that on the table. Yeah, I can't really say whether or not our intentions are good um, beyond our little circle. I mean, the fact that uh, I'm quite quite happy with the ambition being that I, that in 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 you know an ambition of this type of conversation for me is that um, I will literally in, 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 in real time experience completely new ways of thinking, of experiencing myself, of uh, being in a, uh, a context of feelings, thoughts, exploration, etc., etc. That those kind of, um, I don't know what you would call them, emergent experiences, revelatory experiences, small epiphanies. Um, they're the things that, that give me value. Um, and what happens when the stuff gets published, you know, that's a, kind of difficult. It's like uh, somebody makes a painting and puts it up in a gallery, uh, and then somebody looks at their painting and goes home and, you know, commits suicide or... Um, comes up with a new investment scheme or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, is it the guy with the paintings thing? Well, I don't know if it really is his responsibility. But I think what we do here is to um, immerse ourselves into uh, a dynamic between relations and uh, relationships and ideas. Um, and I know that that can be really powerful, but I can't say that uh, the intention necessarily is is good or bad. Um, I know it's, I have a, a a desire for it to be a particular thing for me. Um, I have a desire for it to be valuable or revealing, um, to, 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 to be nourishing. But I don't know what it's going to be like for other people. I, mean, I just feel like, Jesus, why doesn't that guy just shut the fuck up? Let the millennials speak or let, <laughs> let the Wookiee drive the bus. Boss man. No, but another, another fun thing with, with the script. We get black and white on on who speaks, who speaks? How, however much in each and every episode. It gets color-coded on the timeline. Oh, wow, yeah. And what conclusions have you reached? I've only done one. 
this far. It's our first one. And you spoke all the time? No. <laughs> there are long parts that are sort of Dominic chunk. Yeah. Going back to intentions. I, I, I can't see how either of us would do this if we had bad intentions, bunny ears. Like I'm, I'm intentionally aiming at having people off themselves because they get so depressed and, you know, it's like, I, I, I don't, which might mean that there's no intention but I don't see how that could be that there's that any of us would have intentionally aiming at wreaking havoc in a way that would destroy human lives. Let's put it that way. Um, well, I want anarchy. That's that's what I. True, you say that. No, but what? Sort of labeling our intentions isn't isn't that interesting to me, and I don't think it is to to us as a group either. I might be way off here, but but I'm gonna say that because I do think our intentions is, or our intention as a group, uh, at least from from what I've gathered from us talking, is to open new doors. That can be good. That can be bad. Depends on, you know, it's in the eyes of the beholder. Yeah, I think that was the same intention for the guys that started Google and Facebook. Precisely, and that's, and that's my that's point. That's why I asked the question. Yeah, and that's my point as well, is that... We're on the road to hell. We only exactly. have good intentions. Like, or rather, <laughs> no, we are don't. We, that's the thing. Are we? Yes, we... we well, I, yes, <laughs> it's like opening new doors. Well, that's not always good. No, but for us it is. No. It can be a pain in the ass, but generally, yes. Don't know if I agree to that. No new doors. At all. At all. Talk more, because... The Caspian I know would would lives that way. Talk more. Talk more. Come on. No, I don't think it's good for everyone to open new doors. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying our intention is to open new doors for those who want to open new doors. And here's, uh, here's one way that you can start to open new doors. I'm not saying that our intention is for all of the nine whatever billion people on the planet that this is the answer. No way. 
That's not what I'm saying. That was pretty humble. What I'm saying is our intentions are that for those who resonate with this, this is a way to open new doors. And that's our intention. So we're basically door opening simulators. <laughs> Press the button, it opens. You can come and test what it feels like to open a door. Okay, can I just... We're going to disrupt the so, door opening industry. So what I'm... The, the thing that's in my mind right now is that the way I perceive it, our intentions are good from our perspective. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I think that is true for most endeavors, for most startups, for most new ideas. You, you get an idea, you quickly discard it as, oh, fuck, this is way off, or oh, there might be something here. There is this underlying current of, of this might be beneficial for someone. And somewhere along the line, perversion hits. It is thwarted. It is turned into, you know, that fork in the road. Okay, we can do the, the commons way or we can do the greed way. Let's do the greed way. And I'm not sure how intentional that is, how conscious those choices are, but rather you find yourself another, you know, many miles down that road, looking back, thinking, oh, shit, where's this road? Where did we go wrong? Where did we come to that fork in the road and chose, choose this one? And, and is there a way to know that beforehand? Because reverse engineering is fucking easy. Great. So, how to know things beforehand? Yeah, or how to be more conscious about your decisions, you know? Because again, reverse engineering success stories is something completely different than, than running it in, in the proper uh, direction. And I don't know that I don't know that there is that much conscious choicing or decision making in it. Is it one of those oops? And then followed by another oops and then followed by another oops and then down the road you can look back and think, oh, see here, these are the these are the way, this is the way to do it. If you follow these choices, you'll come here. I mean, just picking a, 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 any easy example of, of the most th evil thing that we've ever known, which is Hitler. It is the evil. I don't think he, he stood on a crossroads and said, well, you know, I got kicked out of painting school. Let's kill six million people because of their religion not really what happened but it's quite easy to see it that way now when you reverse engineer yes yes 
And exactly. that's my point. Yeah. Yeah. So of course it's and, easy and to I say. I don't want to become Hitler. <laughs> Let's put it that I don't <laughs> want to end up 20 years from now going, oh, fuck. I have now got become a global evil. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> What? What? <laughs> Why are we even doing this? Well, because it's a, a sort of part of a broader discussion on what are the ethics of engaging the world that you're living in with the tools that make up the world that you're living in. And that's one of the things that I've been pausing on when I've been reading Anti-Fragile and I am like, let's see, one-fourth of the book in, so I have lots to go. But he deliberately inserts his, his morals, his ethics, I think this is right, I think this is wrong, juxtaposing it with what he's speaking about in general terms and a lot of the things that he's, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to see how I react to, because some of the things that he's choosing to do or engaging in for me are just, what the fuck? How would you? Why would you? So, again, it's down to this never-ending dance between me, individual me, and the greater society, the common, the, 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 the culture that we are creating. Mm. Well, I, I think there's a dimension there that, that is really important for me anyway, is how do you know me? Yeah, precisely. How do which, you know which what you, you want? have pointed out numerous times, not only in this pod, but in our conversation and relationship for the past years? It's like, good question. What I perceive to be me is so much a construct of the culture and environment that I'm living in. What's the water? I don't see it because I'm a fish. Oh, yes. And I think that's kind of an interesting part of, of uh, I haven't read uh, um, Anti-Fragile, but he makes similar points both in Black Swan and Skin in the Game is that um, the me aspect is what do I want? Do I know what I want? And there's this kind of... Um, how should one say, in subtext, a, uh, uh, a societal code around agency and desire. So I may develop desires, there's things that I want. I have to employ my agency, my will, um, my intention to achieve those desires. Now, the, the issue that arises that, <clears throat> you know, Lacan, uh, the, the French philosopher and psychologist kind of exp expresses in the sense that um, the, the, the malaise in which uh, humanity finds itself is often 
um, or one of the, the elements is that um, we don't really own our own desire. We dream uh, the dream of the other, as he puts it. Um, and the, the power of the other, um, the, the, the incredibly hypnotic effect of comparison, of wanting things uh, because other people have got them, because you imagine that having those things will give you the same power that you imagine that other people, that other person having, that will give you the same status that you imagine that other person having. That these processes drive uh, uh, very significant, if not the majority of human interactions. Um, so when we have good intentions about making things better and we have a desire to make things better, to what degree is it possible uh, for me to actually say, well, um, is this my desire or am I, am I identifying with some sort of, of common desire within the zeitgeist? Am I identifying with something where if I say that I want the best for humanity, then that makes me more acceptable and gives me a certain amount of status. If I say, well, actually, I'm kind of striving for the end of humanity, so would you mind sort of putting up the finances for me to do that? Um, well, I might actually achieve status amongst a certain number of, 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 of people, probably a fewer number of people. Um, the, the, the core of this issue is um, what's my skin in the game? Do, to, to what degree do I really, really have a sense of myself, of some sort of authentic need and authentic desire? Because the degree to which I'm aware of what I really want and what I really need in a, in a, in a really deep and truthful way that, I, that, that, that seems um, to have a kind of transcendent function in it. Um, it's actually a, an area I didn't want to go into right now, but um, the degree to which I uh, simply copy the desires of others influences a really great example here. So if I see, uh, <coughs> can you name some famous person right now, please? Um, Kim Kardashian. If I see Kim Kardashian, you know, uh, has X shoes or handbag or uses X product, I should also have that. Um, what also starts to come into that is, is this uh, underlying game of advantage, of, of rivalry, of achieving advantage through what are perceived mechanisms. So if I don't have that product, someone else will probably get that product. But if I get it first, if I'm the first one to have the new earphones, the new phone, the new shoes, et cetera, et cetera, then people will see that as affirming my status. And it builds and builds and builds on it. But the, the self, the sort of core experience of me in life is often completely devoid of that. And that exact thing, that experience, justifies inethical behavior or unethical behavior because it's not really me. It's part of a system that justifies itself. And some of my ambition with having these discussions is to come to the other side of that picture of saying, okay, how can I 
put aside um, at least the idea that I know who I am and what I want um, and immerse myself in uh, a kind of interdependent sphere of exploration and maybe um, experience something that is, is completely new for me and that reveals what I experience as the other as a reflection of me in the context of other beings, i.e. the sort of idea of we are, we are persons with agency as a function of relationship, of being in relationship with other persons with agency. These are not static states, that they fluid, that they conditional, that they are um, relational, that they're contextual, and that there's a, a demand for a, a high degree of awareness in order to maintain some sort of sense of um, regenerative ethics, of, of adding value, of becoming deeper, becoming uh, more into life. On a practical philosophical level, when I create an app that disrupts um, some other human need, I don't really think that that takes us deeper or more into life. I think it just uh, makes a convenience out of something that might have resulted in deeper connection, in more connections, in more quality. And I'm sure that, that technology can solve some of those problems. Um, that's not to say that, that, that you know, we should d discard technology, but we should be, uh, in my view, at least hyper-observant that we are actually at the right level of the discussion of what the problem is supposed to solve. If we have a housing crisis, for example, where Airbnb comes out of, there are more empty houses than there are homeless people. Well, the app is not going to solve that. Um, it's not. It's probably going to turn into another instrument to, to service the system that led to the problem. Mm. That's one of the questions that have popped into my mind as I've been listening to pushback talks, uh, where Leila then speaks about human rights. It's like, you know, she says, I'm not pro or against uh, capitalism, yada, yada. It's like I, I just have these things that for things that are human rights, we shouldn't make profits on them. And that made me think, what are human rights? What are they actually? And, and like, is that also layered there's basic human rights, and once those are in place, you can make money off of it. Or, you know, so it's like, talk about opening doors within, going, whoo, shit, there's a big new universe to, to step into and, and explore. Uh, 
and try new thoughts on uh, what's there, what's not there. Yeah, and I mean the the human rights that we usually speak of are on a quite basic level, aren't they? I mean, they're it's very much foundation, sort of having a roof over your head, type of stuff. One thing that that I would argue is a human right is the right to to distribute one's time as one wants. But I mean, I agree that that having a roof over your head is, is probably a better point to start at. And then we look around the world and don't have to go farther than Bultofta, where I you know, live close to this recreational area where there is homeless people, or have been at least. I don't know if there is any right now. And does everybody want a roof over their head? You can go back to that, um, you know, the travelers, um, um, Romani people and whatnot that we've had in Sweden, you have all over. It's like, well, forcing them into having a physical roof over them head, as a, a roof that is firm and not movable in, in, in space, is that? the best thing to do for people who maybe don't want that so it's 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 like there isn't one answer to any of these should we ever force anyone to stay under their roof precisely is, is there ever any one answer i don't think there is ever but so much of of policy making is about providing the answer which which makes it you know for the betterment of the most yeah but not everybody you're so eager to fix the problem that you insert new problems. And then we're sort of back to the start of, of this discussion. Um, because I don't think the intention mostly is to introduce new problems for some. Um, it is to improve for the majority or the people who need it. But it doesn't, that's not the way it happens. We have now talked for almost two hours. I'm thinking we could probably go on for another 20. Um, but we shouldn't. I mean, on the topic at hand. I've got some bad 80s virus going through my brain. 80s virus? 80s virus, you know, like 80s hits. Yeah. There was, uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was a song, because you talk too much, you know, you never shut up. 
time to shut up then. That was actually one, one meme I saw going, uh, popping up in my feed, how the mask, now the corona mask is actually a sign from the universe that you're to shut up, listen more because your ears are still out in the open, but your mouth is behind the mask. So shut up and listen. Uh, which was interesting. And then people who generally make their way in the world through lip reading, they're having a heck of a hard time with masks. So again, <laughs> multiple aspects of everything. 